Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of construction mechanic third class, Marvin Shields. Shields was serving with CB Team 1104, part of the Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 1-1 during the Vietnam War. Shields' story is unique in that he is the only CB to receive the Medal of Honor, and he's going to do so during the Battle of Dong Cai in June of 1965 in Vietnam. Now, a couple things we'll talk here before we get into Shields' story to kind of help set that up. You know, the Vietnam at a high level, if we back off, is a civil war between the North and the South, and if we go back to the Second World War, really where a lot of these conflicts kind of get their spark, maybe, is the way to put it. August of 1945, Japan surrenders. Vietnam is occupied by the Japanese Empire during the Second World War. So as Japan surrenders, it's kind of a you know white space, if you will, in a lot of places around the world. And Ho Chi Minh takes that opportunity, a leader in what would become North Vietnam, takes that opportunity to declare a communist state in Vietnam. And that, you know, we're, we're, we're month one of the Cold War, if, if, if it hasn't already begun. And countries around the world react. And France, at this point, is going to be the one that has the most interest or, or let's say, most interested in intervening. And they put troops on the ground. And for a period of time, you're going to have um, what's known as the French Indochina War, the first Indochina War, that kind of wraps up by 1954 with the Geneva Conference dividing Vietnam between North and South, saying, enough, we're going to put a line here, and, and we've got North Vietnam under you know one government, South Vietnam under another government. And this was something we saw, again, throughout the Cold War. And North Vietnam would be governed by a communist-style style government, and in turn would be backed and supported by the communist powers around the world, Soviet Union and China was very important at this point. And South Vietnam then was supported by all of the not communist powers around the world. Remember, this is the heat of the Cold War. So South Vietnam supported heavily by the United States, as well as a lot of other Western leading democracies. But as we saw over and over again in the Cold War, they're sharing a border. It's going to be ripe for a, you know, it's going to be ripe for conflict. Now, North Vietnam had a military, had a military throughout this conflict. South Vietnam had a military throughout this conflict. But from pretty early on, the military advantage, conventional military advantage, was likely with North Vietnam. But remember, the eyes of the world are kind of watching this area. And as we go through all these conflicts, it's rare that we see what we saw in Korea, where North Korea says, I got it, there's a dividing line but we're going to reunify the peninsula under our rule. We're just going to go. And they invade South Korea. That Not a lot of countries want to do that because that invites a very... Look what happened in Korea. The United Nations came in and decided to fight back. That's It's hard to win. It's hard to say you're on the right side of history or to, to win the support of... Uh, win support in general when there's a broad international coalition coming to fight you. So... Just sending tanks across a border is not always option number one. And what's going on in Vietnam is not that tanks are rolling across the border, although that did happen. There, there most certainly were conventional fights 
throughout really the duration of the war, but kind of a low-level insurgency is maybe a better way to put it. And North Vietnam, for much of this conflict, viewed the South Vietnamese government as fragile. It was for a long stretch, one of the reasons the United States and others would get involved. They viewed the military still relatively competent and and not, let's say, what's a better way to say this? Not a rollover, not a walkover. So it wasn't as though the South Vietnamese military was was nothing. They they weren't, they could have gone toe-to-toe and they did countless times, um, but that was still a force to be reckoned with. But there was a thought that there was enough support in South Vietnam for this, you know, worldwide communist movement that had taken hold in North Vietnam, that they just had to get the support of the people. That's a lot different. Remember, we've seen this take place specifically in Eastern Europe after the Second World War, where there would be an uprising from the people. And then the the allies of these, these um, protesters would come in to protect them. And now all of a sudden, it's not a military incursion. It's not an invasion. It's, hey, look, the people have spoken. We're just coming in to try to protect the people from this corrupt and 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 puppet government, whatever it might be. So it's not a bad strategy. That's, that is a um, very, very broad generalization of some thoughts within the overall North Vietnamese strategy. But nonetheless, what it gets us into is this group known as the Viet Cong. And in Vietnam, the United States and South Vietnamese forces really fought two types of enemy. We fought the North Vietnamese army, you know, NVA, you'll see that in text and referred to often, that was a conventional military force and a very competent conventional military force. And although the United States would fight predominantly on the ground in South Vietnam, there were substantial engagements between the U.S. and and this conventional NVA um, force. The other side of that was known as Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong was more of a guerrilla unit and then, you know, Maybe insurgent is a little bit of the way to, th- to, to look at it, but I want to be careful with how I categorize them because I have looked at this group incorrectly in the past, and we'll try to rectify that here. Um, Viet Cong, the term comes from in Vietnamese, I'm going to butcher this, but bear with me. The way that you say Vietnamese communist is roughly Vietnam Cong San. Hope that's close enough. Anyways, kind of mashing that together, you've got Viet Cong. So the Viet Cong are a mix. That is either people who lived in the north after this dividing line was created and they moved back south, or it's people that lived in the south and and maybe moved north right as the line was created. They're at the very least supporters of this communist ideology. And it's not crazy to have that. There were certainly supporters of the southern democratic ideology living in the north. The North Vietnamese government did a very good job of fostering this movement without without showing overt direct ties. Remember, North Vietnamese government is a legitimate recognized government around the world. They can't be seen as having insurgent forces in another country. It kind of undermines their cause, especially undermines the argument that the people of South Vietnam Vietnam are looking to be liberated by, by North Vietnam. So in it was kind of this open secret, maybe as a way to put it, they were at the very least aligned closely. And as we get further and further away, we're able to 
maybe be a little more objective and identify where there was very clear coordination. You know, the Tet Offensive was closely tied in operations between North Vietnam, the North Vietnamese Army, and the Viet Cong. It's very hard to say that they're um, not well connected after events like that. But nonetheless, the Viet Cong is going to be a guerrilla force. And the mistake I made that I want to come back to is when I think of a guerrilla force, I think of the Iraq and Afghanistan insurgency that we'd run into, where it would be small groups. You occasionally have large battles, like the Battle of Kamdesh, where you have hundreds of fighters bearing down on Cop Keating, but that wasn't the norm. The norm was one guy laying an IED in the road or three guys setting up an ambush and shooting at Americans as they rolled by. That absolutely happened in Vietnam and 100% was a tactic of the Viet Cong. But the Viet Cong also were organized into military-style organizations and had substantial numbers. They had flamethrowers. They had artillery. They had mortars. They were, um, they were mobile, something to keep in mind, right? So they're not going to – mobile as in easily can move around the battlefield. So that's going to restrict some things. They're not going to have you know large formations of vehicles per se. Armored vehicles, not going to be a thing for the Viet Cong. Um, but But – this was not a group running around with just rifles and knives and, and booby traps. I mean, this was a borderline conventional military force fighting in South Vietnam. Many of their attacks, for what it's worth, were conducted at night. And so anyways, that, that's, the, that's the Viet Cong. Now, if we move into 1965, this is a window in Vietnam where the South Vietnamese government is looking weaker and weaker. And with these Viet Cong attacks, it's starting to look like the entire country might fall. So you start to see an escalation of American forces in country. We had American forces in country since the 50s, but they've played a different role. And for a long period of time, the bulk of forces were tied to, you know, um, advising, maybe. This is kind of this is kind of where the U.S. Army Special Forces um, got their start. I mean, they'd existed for years prior, but this was it. American special forces, Green Berets, were embedding with local fighters, local, local, as in South Vietnamese army units, training, equipping, and supporting as best possible these guys in the field and helping to beat back this insurgency. So this is kind of the model for special forces. And it was working, I mean, you know, they were doing a very good job to a degree. It was working well, but... Um, Things were changing in South Vietnam, and they may not be able to hold on. So you start to see an escalation. You start to see an increase in American troops. This is the window, summer of 1965. We're going to see the first American combat unit hit the ground. And it, so the 173rd Airborne Brigade is commonly referred to as the first you know, American combat unit on the ground in May of 1965, because there were a lot of others there prior to that, but just not you know, brigade-sized elements on the ground ready to fight. It's going to be prior. It's going to be right in that window that an American unit is set up out in an area known as Dong Kai, with it's going to be eleven American Special Forces soldiers, with about four hundred, a mix four hundred. I think it's two hundred South Vietnamese soldiers and two hundred Cambodians that they're training, equipping, kind of helping lead into this fight, and and that's a pretty good model at this point. You know, when we look at these conflicts, the United States historically, and it's hard to blame the leadership at the time, we don't want to jump in head first. You want to put your toe in. You know, what's the least amount of effort we can use to accomplish this mission? So at the very start of the Vietnam War, specifically here in 1965, when we're talking is it's looking like we might have to ramp up, but why not see if these special forces teams can accomplish the mission? Special forces teams and, and, 
and more, right? We still had a lot of air power. There were a lot of a lot of ships off the coast. There was a lot of supplies coming into the country. There's a lot of other things happening than just a few special forces teams on the ground. But in 19, you know, prior to 1965, the U.S. footprint was pretty small by comparison, by comparison of what it would be in 1967, 68, 69. So we're trying, we're trying that method. Um, and, and one of the things you have to do within that method is get outside, get out to these remote areas around the country. Again, Vietnam, civil war between the North and the South, you have to win the support of the people. It's very hard to win that support from American bases that are along the coast because that's where we're getting our supplies. That's where the major airstrips are. That's really where the population hubs are throughout Vietnam. But that doesn't mean there's not people scattered all throughout the country. So these special forces soldiers tied in with their assigned units are going to scatter all across the country, all across South Vietnam in order to kind of project power Vietnamese power, remember, with American assistance throughout the whole country. Now, there aren't bases and fortresses built all over the country to be occupied. So what happens when you got this little intersection in a small province, but there's you know a couple hundred people there and you want to at least have a presence? Maybe you need to protect that road because it's a key transit point between two major provinces. So you want to have some sort of presence there. Let's say maybe... 400 local fighters and, and a team of special forces. But what do you do about protection? Because you don't just want to be set up in a house and you want to have some sort of fortification, some sort of building, some sort of, of maybe bunkers to protect from mortar attacks. That's where the CBs come in. And the CBs is spelled S-E-A-B-E-E. -E, and you'll see that on their patch, CB. It comes from um, historically, I believe it was the construction battalion. So the letter C and the letter B slowly turn into CB. Um, nonetheless, this is an engineer, it's an engineer unit within the Navy. And I'm sure I'll get in trouble for, for my comparison here, but we've got a lot of different folks in these types of jobs in the military. And from the army perspective, we have combat engineers and then we have construction engineers loosely. And my view kind of between the two, and I'm going to tie the CVs in here briefly, is when you get combat engineers tied in with your unit, they're out there to blow stuff up. Demo, they're going to breach doors. They're going to remove the size off buildings. They're going to destroy IEDs. They're going to blow bridges as needed. They can build and will build, but they're out there to, to help mobility on the battlefield. On the other side, you've got you know vertical or horizontal engineers that will help to build a base or a road or a airstrip or whatever it might be. CBs are a little bit of a mix of both because remember, so the CBs are in the Navy. The Marine Corps also has combat engineers. So the CBs have to fill a different role. The branches aren't, especially, you know, one branch like the Navy is not in the business of having multiple people with the same job. So the CBs are going to be absolutely combat engineers, which means that they are able to be, you know, front and center during combat operations to clear lanes you know, breach obstacles, think beaches, think landing beaches in World War II. CBs 100% would be involved with that. But there's also an added level of training where they're going to be a little more proficient than your standard combat engineer in building, building bases, building barriers, building bunkers to protect from mortars and artillery and whatever it might be. So in June of 1965, as the special forces team with their local fighters are set up, setting up near Dong Kai, the call goes out. We need some CBs to come out here and help us build this fort. Think about that. 
in June of 1965, this group of, I believe it's nine Seabees, of which one is Marvin Shields, gets the call to go out into the middle of nowhere, Vietnam. Dong Cai is in the southern portion of Vietnam, um, kind of as you near the Mekong Delta. Fly out there. We're going to start bringing in supplies, and you're going to build this base. Now, what's interesting with these bases, and it's the same holds true in Iraq and Afghanistan today, is you're not starting with anything. Maybe there's a building or two. But when you set up shop, it's go time. You, it can't take you three months to build these fortifications. Now, it ends up being, you know, how they look at, you know, let's set up the, 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 the wire first and then maybe the bunker goes second and then the fighting position is third. You build all of the important things before you build in, you know, a kitchen per se. But you're literally, I mean, the, the phrase that comes to mind is building the airplane mid-flight. The enemy doesn't have to wait until you're done building to attack. They can attack day one. They can attack day two, day three. Or on day five, when that base is far from being completed, but on June 10th, on June, the evening of June 9th, 1965, 2,000 strong, a 2,000 strong Viet Cong force attacks the half-built battle uh, base at Dong Cai, kicking off the battle of Dong Cai. They attack at night, as is a common Viet Cong tactic, and they lead with mortars and artillery and machine gun fire and heavy weapons fire, things again Remember, this isn't some little insurgent force. It's bordering on a conventional army. Right away, multiple Americans are wounded, including Shields. Shields will end up being wounded pretty severely twice in this battle. Now, right away, as this battle kicks off late at night, we're going to have, you know, looking back at this battle, you're going to see a higher number of American casualties than actually um, start off the fights because it's going to rage for a few days. And there's going to be a lot of reinforcements involved. But as the fight starts, we're talking about 2,000 Viet Cong, 20 Americans, and 400 local fighters. Severely outnumbered. I mean, five to one outnumbered. And with a couple of the Americans wounded right away, Shields, without hesitation, kind of shifts focus. Remember, this is a guy who's there to build the base. Now they're under fire. He is returning fire 100% over the next seven hours returning fire as the enemy forces close in on the base. But right away, he does what I think is so impressive in many of these stories we read about, which is, what can I do? How can I be of help? Remember, this special forces team, this 11-man team, is incredibly well-trained. They're tight-knit. They've been through combat together before. It's not always so easy to just grab somebody and plug them in. So, Shields, rather than trying to become a tight-knit member of this team just raises his hand and says, what do you need from me? How can I be of service to you guys? Well, what they need is ammunition. And they need ammunition distributed all across this base. So Shields is continuing to fire, continuing to defend the base, but starts shuttling ammunition, which is heavy. And it sucks to carry. And you always want to carry more, but it's there's only so many handles and it weighs you down and, and it's cumbersome. He, he loads up and for hours, I think it's three hours, ferries ammunition all around the base to the various American strong points, allowing them and their South Vietnamese fighter, South Vietnamese partners to hold on in the face of this overwhelming assault. Eventually there's going to be a concerted enemy push with flamethrowers and grenades, right? You don't often think about the enemy fighters having flamethrowers in some of these conflicts, but they did flamethrowers and grenades shields will be wounded again, but won't stop again. What can I do? How can I help? What do you need from me? Now wounded, I think shot in the jaw, shrapnel, and, 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 and 
instead of getting his wounds treated, instead of stepping back, instead of, you know, maybe taking a back seat to the special forces team that is hanging on by their fingernails, he starts running through enemy gunfire once more to remove wounded soldiers, American and South Vietnam, South Vietnamese, from the battlefield, moving them to more covered and concealed positions, including the special forces commander that was hit and severely wounded very, very early in this engagement. Now, at about the seven-hour mark, well, as this fight is raging, and it goes on again for days, and it's hard to grasp that when you read some of the history of this, just the intensity of being wounded and not knowing if you're going to be overrun. Remember, they're out there in the middle of nowhere for hours and hours and hours, just the strain and the stress that that, that creates. At about the seven-hour mark, after this force has moved a couple times and kind of set up shop in their last few, we'll call them Alamo positions, kind of holding on for dear life, an enemy machine gun position moves into an enemy machine gun team moves into a new position and threatens to wipe out the remaining American forces. So the now in command of the team, special forces soldier, I believe it's a lieutenant, looks for volunteers. Shields wounded twice, volunteers, says, I'll go with you. They pick up a rocket launcher and assault into a position, exposed position, to where they can fire on that enemy machine gun position. They do that, knock it out, alleviating what may have been, you know, the final. They alleviated the, they removed the threat that may have knocked out the remaining American troops in the battlefield that day. As he's moving back to a covered position, Shields, at the age of 25, is struck by enemy fire and killed. Because he never stopped running ammunition across that battlefield, because he kept the guys resupplied in the key strong points, because he was removing wounded from the battlefield, and because he volunteered despite being wounded, and despite far from being an expert in rocket launchers and, and close quarters combat and, and all that, volunteering, how can I help? What can I do? Construction mechanic, third class, Marvin Shields, be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions during the Battle of Donkai. Starting the night of June 9th and his passing on June 10th, 1965, as they were building this small little hamlet, building this small little base in South Vietnam. So the battle was incredibly costly. I think all in, we would see 20 American, 20 Americans lose their lives, um, over 400 South Vietnamese, and then an estimated north of 100 Viet Cong. But if it weren't for shields, reinforcing the guys as needed, bringing ammo as needed, it's, it's expected that the number of Americans lost, the entire American contingent could have been wiped out, as well as the remainder of South Vietnamese and Cambodian troops there holding the base at Dong Kai. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.